Read Japanese Literature, a podcast about Japanese fiction and some of its most important and interesting works. My name is Allison Fincher. We're starting with some of the oldest pieces of Japanese literature. Everything we discuss is available in translation, so you can read along if you want. Today we'll be talking about two important genres of medieval Japanese literature, the warrior ballad and no drama. We'll see two characters from the tale of the Heike again, including the valiant female warrior Tomoe, this time as a mournful ghost. Before we really dig in this time, I'd like to answer a question or address an issue we haven't really talked about yet. Why should we read Japanese literature, and why, in particular, we're starting with some of its oldest works? First of all, when we read Japanese literature, we get to explore a new culture. It's a great way to escape, especially during COVID. Right now, there's really no better way to explore Japan than by learning about its rich culture, geography, and history through the books Japanese people have written. Fiction always lets us read through the lens of people who have been to places and experienced things out of our reach. It's also important especially to have a foundation in Japanese literature and in some of its classic works because it helps us avoid Orientalism. We're not just consuming Japanese culture because it's exotic or cool. We can find out things about Japan beyond anime and otaku and J-pop. We're reading books about Japan to learn about its people, history, and culture. And because we're starting all the way back through the history of Japanese literature and its original sources, we're trying to really listen to what Japanese authors have to say. As far as I'm concerned, it's always very important to go back and read the oldest works of any literature for context. The Song of Achilles really depends on reading the Iliad. These Violent Delights is a Romeo and Juliet story. Twilight is Pride and Prejudice. So many of the works in the English language are much richer when you know what is percolating in the author's mind. And we're trying to do the same thing for Japanese writers. Ultimately, though, the best stories transcend culture. Because they ask the same kinds of questions. What is it to be human? And what gives life meaning? We're starting with the works and characters that are hugely influential for the rest of Japanese literature. In particular, today, we're going to look at two heroes that came up first in the tale of the Heike. And now we're going to come up again in both ballads and no plays. And then we'll come up in future works of Japanese literature and culture. Last episode, we talked about the tale of the Heike, and the end of the tale of the Heike also marks the end of Heian Japan. The Japan of Genji is gone. We can call the period that comes after Heian Japan medieval Japan, and it's where we'll be spending the next two episodes. Historians tend to divide Japanese history into fairly precise periods. So, what I'm calling medieval Japan. A more precise historian would call the Kamakura period, which lasts from 1192 to 1333, and the Muromachi period, which lasts from 1338 to 1573. 
As I mentioned in the last episode, medieval Japan is not a politically stable place or time. There won't be lasting political stability in Japan until 1603. But medieval Japan roughly overlaps with what a Westerner might think of as medieval European history. Worldwide, it's the time of the rule of Genghis Khan in Mongolia, the end of the Islamic Golden Age, Marco Polo's travels to China, the construction of the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan, and the arrival of the Maori in New Zealand. Medieval Japan is also the age of the samurai. And yes, samurai here is a little bit of an anachronism. A more contemporary term would have been bushi, which means warrior, or buke, which means military family. But I'm going to use samurai anyway, because that's the most common word in English to describe this period of medieval history and the Japanese warrior class. So how does this period begin? Minamoto Yoritomo is the victorious older brother hero from the tale of the Heike. He becomes Japan's first shogun. He sets up his capital in Kamakura. It's a city near the ocean south of modern Tokyo. And this is the first time in centuries that the capital of Japan has not been in Kyoto. Essentially, during the Kamakura period, there are two capitals— a court and cultural capital in Kyoto, and this court and cultural capital retained a high degree of cultural influence. And then there's a military and political capital in the east in Kamakura. This two-capital system creates a period of what the anthology traditional Japanese literature describes as a period of striking cultural and literary changes. Most notably, medieval Japanese literature is less elite. It tends to represent the fears and aspirations of a wider stratum of society. For several centuries, the military class, samurai culture, remained very drawn to aristocratic heian culture and tried pretty hard to imitate it. Samurai were much more important as consumers of culture than as producers of it. The people who were writing the stories, telling the stories, tended to be fallen or lesser aristocrats, traveling minstrels, and especially Buddhist priests. We're going to talk in the next episode about exactly how important Buddhism and Buddhist priests are in the history of medieval Japanese literature. Slowly, under the influence of Zen Buddhism, Samurai culture began to produce its own aesthetic and cultural traditions. Compared to earlier Japanese literature, medieval literature is also notably produced and consumed by groups. Authorship is a less important issue during this period. We discussed how the tale of the Heike is compiled from many different sources and retold by many different scribes. And it's also consumed publicly in performances by bards traveling with Biwa lutes in the case of ballads, and then in public performances in the case of no. I want to remember a couple key points about the tale of the Heike. Heike is about the Minamoto clan's defeat of the Taira. Minamoto Yoritomo is the more refined of the two Minamoto cousins, 
in Heike, and he becomes the head of the Minamoto clan. Yoritomo's greatest general is his younger brother, Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune is the one who finally defeats the Taira. At the end of Heike, Yoritomo, the older brother, is also barbarian subduing commander, or shogun. After Heike, this is how the story of the two brothers continues. Instead of rewarding Yoshitsune, Yoritomo gets worried that his brother is too popular and too powerful, so he chases his brother from the capital. Yoshitsune eventually seeks the protection of a powerful warlord. That warlord dies, and the warlord's son betrays Yoshitsune. Rather than risk capture by his brother, Yoshitsune commits ritual suicide in 1189. Incidentally, the warlord's son pickles Yoshitsune's head in a vat of sake and sends it to Yoritomo as proof that his brother is dead. Now, even though Yoshitsune loses, culturally, he is still celebrated as an admirable character. He's brave, intelligent, skillful, sexually desirable. In fact, the Japanese idiom that in English we might translate as rooting for the underdog, hogenbiki, literally translates as rooting for Lieutenant Yoshitsune. There are records of folk ballads about Yoshitsune starting in about the 14th century, several hundred years after his death. These ballads are part of a larger tradition of military narratives called gunkimono or gunkimonogotari, and the tale of the Heike is the prime example of that genre. But these ballads take place, or these ballads are written, several hundred years after the tale of the Heike. And the tradition of Gunkimonogatari has changed a bit. Yoshitsune ballads are notably different than earlier military narratives like the tale of the Heike. They focus on the life of one warrior instead of many. And they're composed of local folk stories. And they also begin to reflect the values and perspectives of the urban commoner. In these ballads, Yoshitsune gets a loyal sidekick. Saito Mushashibo Benke. Benke is a monk turned rogue warrior. English speaking readers might compare him to folk heroes like Little John and Friar Tuck, maybe rolled up into one character. Because Benke is a folk hero, he has many origin stories. Maybe his father was the head of a temple shrine who raped the daughter of a blacksmith. Maybe his mother carried him for 18 months before he was born. Maybe he was also Oniwaka, a demon or ogre child with wild hair and long teeth. Legends say that by the time he was 17, he was six foot six. Eventually, he leaves the monastery where he was raised and decides he'll make his living by taking 1,000 swords from 1,000 warriors. He successfully claims 999 swords loses to Yoshitsune, and becomes Yoshitsune's loyal retainer. Maybe the most famous of these Yoshitsune ballads is called The Story of Yoshitsune, or Gekeiki. It was composed about 1411. In the story of Yoshitsune, we see two sides of this hero. Sometimes he's a vigorous, quick-witted, preternaturally talented military leader. And sometimes he's a gentle, indecisive, tragic figure with no real control over his fate. 
I want to give you a flavor for the beauty, excitement, and humor from the story of Yoshitsune in two episodes. In the first of these, Benkei and Yoshitsune have just met. Benkei has twice failed to take Yoshitsune's sword, so he follows Yoshitsune to a temple. Surprisingly, when he finds Yoshitsune, Yoshitsune is dressed up as a woman. There's some shuffling around, but the two then begin reading the Lotus Sutra together. So this is an important Buddhist text. And this is how the text continues. Benkei had been one of the most famous sutra readers in the Western compound, and Yoshitsune had been well-trained as a page at Kurama. As they read the first half of the second scroll in alternation, with Benkei taking the lead and Yoshitsune following, the noisy crowd of pilgrims grew still, and the devotees stopped ringing their bells. An indescribable aura of sanctity pervaded the quiet night. And then the two jump up and start fighting again over Yoshitsune's sword. In the second scene I want to discuss with you, Benkei is fighting the battle to protect Yoshitsune that will end in both of their deaths. Benkei has already been stabbed in the vocal cords. This is an injury the text describes as one that would have, quote, made an ordinary man's senses real. But Benkei seemed all the livelier for it and was fighting as though the enemy were hardly worth his attention while the blood poured down his chest and flowed steadily onto the ground from his moving armor. Benkei eventually realizes that defeat is inevitable, and he goes to find Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune is again reading from the Lotus Sutra. Benkei determines to distract the enemy long enough for his lord to commit ritual suicide in peace. Their parting scene is beautiful, and it's another reflection of rarefied court culture. Benkei looked fixedly on his master's face while tears constricted his throat. At the sound of enemy voices, he took his leave and started off, but in a moment he returned to recite a verse. The one of us may die before the other. Wait for me, my lord, where the road to hell branches off. Since Benkei had alluded to the future in such a desperate hour, Yoshitsune responded, Join me in the next world and the next, until we mount to paradise on a purple cloud. And Benkei wept aloud. Professor Mark Ravenna describes how Yoshitsune and Benkei capture what he calls, quote, the duality of warrior rule in medieval Japan. Benkei is a figure that most English-speaking readers would recognize as aggressively masculine. He's huge, burly, crude. Yoshitsune, on the other hand, is fair, refined, and elegant, almost feminine. In the story of Yoshitsune, Benkei first encounters Yoshitsune while Yoshitsune is playing a flute. There are echoes here of the young flute player from Heike that we discussed in the last episode. Yoshitsune's flute playing is a sign of his refinement. In a different Yoshitsune ballad, Benkei first encounters Yoshitsune disguised as a woman. He almost allows her to pass until he notices that she is wearing a man's sandals and a sword. Benkei loses, nevertheless. So these two heroes reflect what Professor Ravenna calls the fluidity of gender roles in medieval Japanese culture. 
being more conventionally feminine doesn't stop Yoshitsune from being one of the most famously powerful warriors in Japanese culture. Second, these two heroes are also examples of the backward-looking admiration of courtier culture and, at the same time, the forward-looking admiration of warrior culture. to talk about one more famous episode from Yoshitsune lore that shows up in two different genres, the warrior ballads we've just been discussing, but also in no drama. Here's the story as it appears in the story of Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune's brother Yoritomo decides he's a threat. Benkei comes up with a plan to help Yoshitsune escape. They're all going to dress up as mountain priests. One of the men traveling near Yoshitsune's party gets suspicious. And Benkei invites him, if you think anybody here is Yoshitsune, point him out. The man successfully points to Yoshitsune. Thinking quickly, Benkei gripes at the man, we can't afford to be objects of suspicion everywhere we go just because of him. This is how the story of Yoshitsune describes what happens next. Quote, while Yoshitsune hung his head in silence, Benke leaped angrily onto the gunwale of the boat, seized his master's arm, hoisted him roughly onto the sand, and with a fan which he pulled from his waist, began to beat him so mercilessly that the onlookers averted their eyes. The man who challenged Benke is horrified by the brutality of this beating, and so he lets Benke's party pass. As soon as they're safe, Benke bursts out crying because of the way he treated Yoshitsune. And Yoshitsune comforts him, saying, I can't hold back the tears when I think of what will become of you men who have stood by an unlucky master for so long. The story shows up a little differently in No Drama. But first, I should give you a very quick introduction to No. When I started this podcast, I wasn't planning to talk about Japanese drama traditions, But it turns out that some of these texts are so central to Japanese culture that we can't tell the story of Japanese fiction without them. No, in particular, has this kind of cultural currency. No is a highly stylized fusion of dance, musical performance, and even religious ritual. The protagonist, also called the shite, or the doing hand, moves across the stage to musical accompaniment. And the stage is almost bare. There might be small props representing places or objects, but there's no painted scenery, for example. Like most of the characters in No Drama, the protagonist wears one of No's iconic expressionless masks. And I'm calling it expressionless here, but some people would call it infinitely expressive because the way the actor tilts the mask dramatically changes the way the face looks. The shite is accompanied by a chorus of six to ten members who recite or play drums or flutes. And this chorus has a lot of parallels with, say, Greek drama, where the chorus draws out some of the important themes or provides additional narration. No theater doesn't tend to have antagonists in the Western theatrical sense. The character opposite the protagonist, 
is called the walkie, and the walkie listens to the protagonist's story. The walkie is always a living person. Sometimes the shite is a ghost or a spirit. And the walkie is one of the few characters who does not wear a mask. The actor is expected to use his own face as though it were a mask. As a tradition, no theater is profoundly influenced by contemporary Buddhism. And again, we'll talk about Buddhism in medieval Japan in an upcoming episode. Notably, No is known for its yugen aesthetic, an aesthetic of profound and refined beauty. The repertoire for No also comes mostly from literary sources that predate it, particularly Genji and Heike. And you might compare that to, say, Shakespeare and Elizabethan theater. Very few of Shakespeare's plays come from original plots. The No play I'm thinking about retells how Benkei flogged Yoshitsune, and it's a play called Ataka. It was probably written in 1465 by a man named Kanze Kojiro Nobumitsu. Staged, it takes about an hour and a half. It's part of a subcategory of no drama called Genzai no. And these are plays that deal with events in the real world, life, art, passion, or war. Ataka's Benkei's plan is more elaborate. He claims that the men he's traveling with aren't just monks, but they're monks who are specifically traveling to fundraise to rebuild Todaiji Temple. The person who questions the party demands that Benkei read the letter he has been reading to potential donors. The problem, of course, is that they aren't really fundraising and there is no such letter. Benkei pulls out a blank scroll and he proceeds to improvise a beautiful letter with appropriate language and theology. And this improvised letter that he recites is considered one of the greatest recitals in the No repertoire. Since Gautama Buddha, the unparalleled leader of living things, entered nirvana just as the fall moon hides behind a cloud, no one comes to enlighten the illusion of all living beings who eternally reincarnate and flow as having a long, dark night dream. We ask now for donations from people in all provinces, even as little as a sheet of paper or half a penny, people who offer donations for the reconstruction will fully enjoy their lives in this world and will sit on many thousands of lotuses in the pure land in the other world. Just like in the ballad, Benkei eventually has to beat Yoshitsune, to prove that he can't possibly be Yoshitsune. It's appropriate to know's aesthetic, though, that when Benkei apologizes, it's much more understated than it was in the ballad. No one sheds any tears, and Yoshitsune simply praises Benkei. Your intelligence at the barrier is beyond a human's. One more quick thing to note. In the no-play Ataka, Yoshitsune isn't the protagonist. Benkei is. Benkei is the shite, the doing hand. And the action revolves around Benkei and his actions. And we noted the way Yoshitsune's masculinity might not look conventionally masculine. It's worth noting that in this no play, Yoshitsune is played by a juvenile or a child instead of an adult man. 
Finally, we're going to talk about one more character from Heike and her appearance in No Drama. You may remember Tomoe from our episode about the tale of the Heike. She fought alongside Yoritomo's oafish cousin, Yoshinaka. She's possibly not a real historical figure, but her importance to Japanese culture really transcends whether she existed or not. The Heike narrator describes her as beautiful and deadly, an archer of rare strength, a powerful warrior, and on foot or on horseback, a swordsman to face any demon or god. She was a fighter to stand alone against a thousand. This is the Tomoe we saw in Heike, an onamushi, a woman warrior as powerful on the battlefield as a man. Here's another short section, her final battle, that I think really demonstrates the kind of character she is in Heike. Onda no Hachiro Morushige, a man from Musashi famed for his strength, rode up with 30 men. Tomoe charged, caught him in an iron grip, forced his head down to her pommel, kept it pinned there, twisted it around, cut it off, and tossed it away. Now, in what follows, I'm going to be borrowing from the work of Professor Elizabeth Euler, who writes about the way the portrayal of Tomoe changes when she's incorporated into no drama. Tomoe is maybe most famously portrayed in the play Tomoe. It's a play in the official canon of 253 no plays. Specifically, it's from a genre called dream no or mugen no. In the first act, a traveler, usually a monk, meets a local commoner. That commoner recalls a famous episode that took place in that location. And then in a second act, the traveler's dream reveals that that commoner is actually a supernatural being, a ghost, a spirit, or a deity. The supernatural being reenacts the important episode, gains insight about Buddhist detachment, and asks the monk to pray for its enlightenment. In Tomoe, the doing hand, the shite, is Tomoe. The waki, the character playing opposite her, is a traveling priest. He encounters a woman at the marker where Yoshinaka was killed. That woman turns out to be the ghost of the woman warrior Tomoe and asks the priest to pray for her soul. At the play's climax in Act 2, she briefly reenacts her final battle, reciting, Thus she fought, felling the enemy one after another, till in one direction there were all driven back, and fled away, leaving no trace behind, and fled away, leaving no trace behind. The ghost then throws off her armor, takes up Yoshinaka's keepsakes, and leaves the stage. You might have noted that this Tomoe is not really a character imbued with individuality and historicity. She's more of a vessel for Yoshinaka's memory. And she really isn't the same character we saw in Heike. She's passive versus active. She's more caught up in memorializing Yoshinaka than in participating in events with him. Professor Euler demonstrates that there are other famous no-plays that portray Tomoe in a way that looks a little bit more familiar to Heike readers. And the two Professor Euler outlines are The Living Tomoe and Tomoe in Her Time. These are more examples, like Ataka, of realistic or genzai no, set in a real time based on living people instead of ghosts or spirits. They aren't about memory. 
and they take place during the battle. Yoshinaka tries to send Tomoe away. During the tale of the Heike, he's embarrassed to die near a woman. In these no plays, Tomoe is assertive and stands up to Yoshinaka. She says, I beg your forgiveness for compelling you to repeat yourself, but you are about to die. What do you care what other people hear about you? A third play about Tomoe, called Midai Tomoe, takes place after the battle. But Tomoe is still concerned with protecting Yoshinaka, not only mourning him or memorializing him. In this play, Tomoe goes to report Yoshinaka's death to Yoshinaka's wife. Enemy troops appear. Tomoe wards off the attackers and leads Yoshinaka's wife and sons to safety. So we get this really interesting Tomoe who appears as an almost different character in different reiterations of her story. Professor Euler summarizes this really nicely. Quote, by simultaneously representing the active and assertive military woman in a male's role and the conventional self-sacrificing supportive female, she's a paradox requiring explanation. My hope is that today I've made a good case for why we're starting with some of Japanese literature's oldest works. We started with Heike, and now we're in a better position to understand and appreciate what comes next, Yoshitsune ballads and no drama. And the characters we discussed today, Yoshitsune and Tomoe, will both pop up again in kabuki plays, in Kurosawa films, in manga. And also, concepts like No's Yugen aesthetic are important for all of the Japanese literature that follows. If you want to read along with us, you can always find the editions I've been reading from at readjapaneseliterature.com. I'm especially grateful this week for theno.com, the hyphen N-O-H.com, uh, from which I've been able to cite a couple of copyright-safe ways for you to read these plays for free. Next time, we'll be talking about Setsua and medieval Japanese Buddhism. What does medieval Japanese Buddhism look like? How does it affect medieval Japanese literature? And we'll look at a few examples of Buddhist stories, both serious and comic, including the story of a wife with some spicy insults about her husband's equipment. If you want to offer feedback or suggestions, please tweet us at at readjapaneselit. I want to give a special thank you to Adam Sola for production assistance. A special thank you to Professor Rebecca Copeland and Professor Elizabeth Euler for help with secondary sources and to the Japanese Literature Group on Facebook. Finally, a special thank you to Producer Kaim for today's music. Find him at at khaimmusic and khaimmusic.com. <laughs>